a smile upon my face Cause there's excitement in the chase This I know Today is our last week in the How to Restart Life series. And so I want to give you just a reminder of where we've been over the last couple of weeks. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to ask the question, what does it mean to get life started on the right foot now that we have an opportunity to kind of get some things started again? Uh, We have been in this weird, awkward place for the past 18 months, 19 months. We're still lingering in it. We're still limping our way through it. And uh, we haven't already, we haven't all the way come out of the COVID thing, but we also haven't come out of any of the other divisive topics of our day. And so since we are in the process of trying to recover from all of this mess, we need to understand what it means to get our life started on the right foot. And over the past couple of weeks, I highlighted that I I think a lot of our stress comes from three particular struggles that we have. Three layers of struggles, I should say. The outermost layer of struggle is our struggle with other people where we just are like, man, what in the world are these other people thinking? I don't understand them. I don't get them. They make me mad, and I hear what they have to say, and it just just bothers me. Our struggle with other people. And then there's the struggle, I said, with ourselves, Uh, the various versions of ourselves. I, I could be this kind of person, or I could be that kind of person. And we were talking about the fact that we struggle with choosing the right kind of person for ourselves to be, and then actually stepping into it and walking that way. And then the inner struggle, the one that is actually at the core of it all, is a struggle that we have with God. Because God's the one who puts you on the planet at this time in the history of the world. God's the one who chose for you to be the age that you are as we are going through this stuff in our society. God's the one who said it's okay for us to experience this time right now. I'm not saying that God has has intentionally chosen for all of your misfortune to befall on your life. What I'm saying is God is so in charge, he had to at least say okay to it because he might have a plan with it but our problem is that we are stuck in this inner area where we have a struggle against God where we're like God I don't think you made a good call in my life I don't think you made a good decision in my life I don't think this particular situation is working the way that it should work and and we can struggle with God we can blame God but ultimately we have to come to the place where we deal with each of these things And to deal with each of these things, I said we needed to start in the center. We needed to start in the middle and uh, work our way out. And there's a verse of Scripture that we've been using kind of as our theme verse for this whole journey. It's from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Let me put it up here on the screen. It says, this is Paul, who, by the way, I need to remind you, hated Christians until he became one when he encountered the power of God visibly in front of him in an incredibly powerful way. But anyway, Paul says, I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The first thing Paul said is that we need to have the interior of our lives 
colored by the Spirit of God, by Christ living in us. I'll come back to that in just a little bit. Let's move on. He then says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And so last week I said love is the thing that needs to characterize us because love is the thing that we need to be rooted and established in in order for us to experience God's power. And so, if we have this struggle, struggle against other people, struggle with myself, struggle against God, if we are in this kind of struggle, the solution for our struggle is to tap into God's power in each one of these areas. And so, just to review what we've said over the past few weeks from this verse, the first thing that we need to do to tap into God's power is to recognize that God will put His own Spirit in each of us who receive it by faith. And that means surrender, and that means acceptance. That means me saying, God, yes, you're in charge, and I'm okay with that. The first step of us experiencing God's power is to let God's power overshadow our power, to let God's power be the power that we are living in. God, yes, you, not me. But then the second thing is that God is going to transform me into a person of love. I need to let God actually do that work, and I need to participate with him in that work of becoming a person of love so that no longer do I have to wage war with myself about what kind of person I'm going to be. It all boils down to just one question. Which of the various options available to me is the person of love? And that's the path that I'm going to walk. But now today... Today we're coming to the third way for us to connect to God's power. And it's the one that most directly touches on the outer area of our struggle. Our struggle with other people. And I'm phrasing it this way. If you're taking notes, write the whole thing down. It says this. God's, God is going to unleash the power of His presence among believers when we walk in love together. God unleashes the power of His presence among believers when we walk in love together. You see, uh, Ephesians chapter 3 said that Paul was praying that we, being rooted and established in love, would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Pause there for just a moment. What does it mean to know something that surpasses knowledge? How in the world can anyone know something that surpasses knowledge? Well, there's one kind of knowledge that surpasses knowledge, and you all know what it is. It's experience. Experience is the knowledge that surpasses knowledge. If you're going to know a love that surpasses knowledge, that means you have to be walking in that love. And so Paul's effectively praying, God, I pray that you would take all these people who are rooted and established in love. And I pray that you would bind them together in love. And I pray that them being together in love, walking in love, they would experience the power of your presence. And listen, if Paul is asking God for it and writing the scripture to inform us about it, then Paul knows this prayer is going to be answered with a yes for those who walk in it. 
And so I want to encourage you today. We are going to be the people who are going to walk in love together. But that's easier said than done. And so I want to walk on a journey with you to try to understand how we make this practical in our lives. And it begins with a passage of Scripture that I go back to a lot. Now, at least once, twice, maybe three times a year, I will refer to each one of the chapters that open up the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Not too long ago, I referred to Genesis chapter 3, where we were talking about how uh, human beings committed the first sin when they decided they knew better than God what was good and what was bad. I've mentioned not too long ago Genesis chapter 1 when we were going through the book of Matthew and talking about Jesus saying that we were made in the image of God. But it's good for us to look at chapter 2 because something happens in chapter 2 that I think is fundamental to our awareness and our understanding of who we are as human beings. And it is this passage, Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God, when he made human beings, in chapter 1, it said God made them male and female. In chapter 2, he started with the dude. And then he said, nope, not good enough. Got to bring in the woman. Because this is the truth. You were not made to be alone. None of us were made to be alone. You can't just say that men are not made to be alone, but all the women, they're fine, you know. You you can't go there. God says it is not good for human beings to be alone, so he made a helper suitable for him. It is not good for us to be alone. We were not made to be alone people. We were made to be with people. When I uh, first went to college, I was coming from California And I went to college in Chicago. I went to a school called Wheaton College. It's a private Christian school in the suburbs of Chicago. And when I got there, I encountered something fascinating. I encountered the fact that people who did not have a different accent could still have a different dialect. Namely, people in California, I know you're thinking of the California Valley Girl accent when you think of the California kind of talking, but I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the fact that most Americans have this sort of television accent. You know, television has sort of blended all of our accents together. But one thing television can't do is let you know that pop means soda and that soda means ice cream float depending on which part of the country you're in. And what it also can't tell you is how college-age kids in the early 1990s used a preposition at the end of their sentences inappropriately. Oh, it made me shiver. Um, so yes, I have, I have spoken before about how I'm, I'm kind of a grammar snob. And that's not my fault. You have to understand. It's my mom's fault. She was my grammar teacher when I was in, in junior high, and she, Bible and grammar were the two subjects she taught at my school. And then um, when I got older and I took the SATs, my mom was not pleased with my English SAT score, and so she bought me, kid you not, bought me a, a, <laughs> a textbook, a grammar textbook from a high school, bought me a grammar textbook, gave it to me, and said, Jeff, you are going to read this and take the SAT again. 
And I'm like, okay, so it's been ingrained in me that grammar is somehow important. And uh, I did moderately better on the grammar my second time through the SAT. I somehow did more poorly on my math. But anyway, it's just the brain was focused in one area, I guess. But so, okay, so I'm kind of a grammar snob. And when I got to college, all the kids around me were using this phrase, especially the Midwest kids. They were using this phrase. They would say, I'm going to, and they would mention something, like I'm going to the store, or I'm going to the gym, or I'm going to the dining hall. Who wants to come with? And I was waiting. I I was waiting. There's a a verb, or a noun, or a pronoun, or something else that needs to come after that. You know, the sentence needs to continue. You can't just stop it with with. You, you can't. With is a preposition. It needs an object. And unless you have an object, and it was also at the end of a sentence, which is a, a separate grammatical rule. There were two rules. They were breaking. Who wants to come with? And I was just so incensed by the fact that people my age were just flaunting the rules so blatantly. And then, then, I began to just accept that I couldn't do anything to change it. It was just a disagreement that I had with the people around me, and I couldn't do anything to change it, so I just accepted it. But now, it's persisted in my life. I'm living in the Midwest still, and it's everywhere. Everybody is still using this. My children are using this phrase, and I shrug inside and just sort of you know, cringe a little bit every single time it happens, but I'm learning. And what I've learned is something fascinating. You see, if I said, who wants to come here? that sentence works. If I said, who wants to go there? That sentence works. See, my problem is I was treating with like it was a preposition leading to some other thing. When the truth is, with is a destination. Who wants to come here? Who wants to go there? Who wants to come with? With is its own destination. It just is. It doesn't matter if we're here or there just so long as we're with. That's the place to be. And I'm like, wow, enlightenment bomb right there. I, still gram- grammatically, it's annoying to me. But I can, I, can, I can get behind it a little bit with this idea that with is way better than against. See, here's the, here's the thing. With is a very strange thing. Because they could say, who wants to come with? But they had already told me where they were going. I'm going to the store. Who wants to come with? I'm going to the, to the whatever it was, the dining hall. Who wants to come with? But if they just said, who wants to be with? Who wants to come with? Without the direction, then I'd be like, sure, with is a good destination. Let's do the with thing together. Let's, let's get together and let's be with each other. I just finished the preposition there. So uh, who, wants to be, who wants to be with? Yes, let's do that. Until someone then tells me that they're going in a direction I don't want to go. Or that they're going to the de- same destination I want to reach, but they want to take a different path to get there. See, that's when the with becomes complicated. Because I can't be with you if I'm on a different path. And I can't be with you if I'm heading in a different direction. And so what we do as human beings who were created for with, as human beings who are intrinsically hungry for with, 
When we recognize that with is complicated, we settle for against. Because against is so much easier. Against is so much clearer. Against is so much more tangible. See, as long as I can identify that I am against a thing, then I never have to think about being with all the other people who are for that thing. If you are going to the store, I don't have to be with you if I don't want to go to the store. It doesn't matter how valuable with is, I don't want to go to the store, I'm going to stay here in my room and do my homework or play my game or whatever else it is that I can do when I'm at college while you're going off to the store. Here's the thing, it's so much easier to be against, and so we do it all the time, and we've gotten really, really good at it. And the more we get information from the rest of the world about all the varieties of things that we can be against, the easier it is to be against more and more things. Until finally, there's a group of people who, for whatever dynamic, are against the exact same things that this group of people is for. And this group of people is against the exact same things that this group of people is for. And somehow, somehow, we develop into a culture where we are intrinsically, incredibly divided from each other. And not just in our culture, also in our churches. But I want to remind you of something that is true, that you already know. It's just hard to live. Against is a very poor substitute for with. Against never measures up to the potential of with. The first time I met my wife, I've told you guys this story before back in 1995. If you've been around here a little while, you've heard this story, I'm sure, a couple of times by now. Someone asked the question in our last um, question and answer session here, how did you meet your wife? And so I, I shared just a smidgen of it. Some of you know that in 1995, I walked into a room and I saw her from across the room and it was love at first sight. And I'm not going to get into more of those details right now because I've got a different story I want to tell you. You see, the first week we were actually hanging out, and this is a story I don't think I've ever told from this platform before. I think I've shared with it, shared some of the story with some of you um, in, in smaller context. But anyway, during our first week of really beginning to get to know each other, the first day that we met that next week, I was out of town and so we couldn't hang out or anything. But the first week that we actually started hanging out, my goal was to spend every moment I could with her. And so I would ask her to do all the things that she already wanted to do. I knew she liked taking walks and so we went on walks. And during one of our walks, as we're, as we're going through our entire life story, and I'm telling her all the things in my life that I like and I don't like, and we're, we're ticking off all the boxes of where where we're, where we're similar to each other, where we're compatible with each other. We get through all of these different things. And then I saved it for near the end because this one was really important to me. Um, it's embarrassing kind of for me to say this, but when I was a kid, you know how you would go to one of these parties where there'd be like this tray of vegetables on, on they call it crudite, which is a, a really weird name, but there's this, this like tray of vegetables and there's dip and there's broccoli, which you would only ever eat if it was 50% broccoli and 50% dip, or even a higher ratio dip, and other things that were there. But there was, in rare instances, on the tray, green bell peppers. And I kid you not, green bell peppers 
are like my favorite thing of all time. Raw, cooked, whatever. I am a huge fan. On, on uh, Philly cheesesteak sandwich, green peppers and onions, definitely more important than the cheese. On pizza, green peppers and onions, best topping in the world. Even if I can't have the onions, the green peppers, best topping in the world. I kid you not, I like them raw, I like them every possible way. And growing up as a kid, I was very aware of the fact that this was my favorite vegetable. And so, saving this question to the end, as Jen and I are beginning to get to know each other, I said to her, so how do you feel about green bell peppers? It was like the second or third day we'd been on any sort of date type thing. Might have been the first day. How do you feel? We'd already covered the ground of, you know, are you a Christian? And uh, did you come from a good family? We already covered that ground, but still, this was important to me. How do you feel about green bell peppers? And I barely got the words out of my mouth when I think I saw her gag. And, and my heart broke a little bit. And I think, I think, I, I don't remember this totally, I think I stopped walking and just stood there in, in this, on the sidewalk wherever we were and I just had to have a moment. I had to think through, is this relationship worth this? this? This could be my life. This could be the rest of my life. And, and I, might have to, I might have to give, because it wasn't just that she didn't like the taste. It was like the smell just would make her sick. Her mom made these green bell peppers once that just made her sick. And the, every, every other time, just the smell of them like anywhere can, can do that. And so I was there in that moment having this real personal dilemma about whether you do an argument, you know, whether, whether you argue with the person, whether you capitulate to their whims or whether you just sever the relationship and go your separate ways. And it was one of those moments and I decided, listen, I just got to press on through this thing, and maybe one of these days she'll see the light. She hasn't, and neither have I. Both of us are still exactly in the same opinion place we were when we first met. It's okay. You know, after 20-some years, we're, we're doing all right. You know what I'm saying? We've, we've made it work. But I tell you what. Still to this day, when I open up the refrigerator and I open up that vegetable drawer and I see a bell pepper in the drawer, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I am loved. And I make sure she's out of the house or far away somewhere when I cook it. <laughs> but here's the thing. With is the only time you ever get to experience sacrificial love. Against will never get it to you. In a world of against, you never experience the love of another person who makes a sacrifice for you. 
In the world of against, you're never motivated to make a sacrifice for the other person. In the world of against, there is no idea of sacrifice. Because in the world of against, it all depends on where I stand and where I don't want to go. And if I'm already here, there's no sacrifice for me being here. And if I don't want to go there and never do go there, there's no sacrifice taking me away from here to go over there. And so with is off the table if I'm focused on against. But with is so much more valuable because the only way with ever works is for a sacrifice to be made and for love to be shown. And you can't experience the love unless you are willing to cross away from against into the world of with. So I want to encourage you that as we're talking about restarting our lives on a firm foundation, as we've already talked about surrendering our lives to God, as we've already talked about letting God cultivate in us a life of love, the last thing we need to do is to be absolutely firmly convinced that we are called to do life together with other believers in a with way. We are the people who are called to do life with other believers. And so I want to give you just a couple bits of advice, some uh, things here from Ephesians chapter 4 on how to be with other believers. So I'm going to be skipping around in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start with uh, just the first couple of verses, but then I'm going to skip a few verses later. And uh, uh, let me see, I'd like to read it directly from the passage here for you. Almost there. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says this, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There are two things, two things that you need if you want to be uh, a person with other believers. Two things, and then I'm going to mention a few more as we keep reading. But the two things from this passage are, number one, humility. The idea that I could be wrong. I mean, that's a hard enough admission to make. Uh, Jen and I were in the car yesterday uh, driving up from Brown County because we thought, hey, you know, let's, let's check out the leaves. And so as we're driving in the car, we're having this conversation about this message, and we're talking about, you know, what is one of the fundamental things that we need to have as human beings when it comes to relationships with other people? And it's this humility, this awareness that I could be wrong, the other person could be right. And as soon as the words got out of our mouths, we're initially thinking of all the people we know who are definitely wrong. You know, that, that I don't want to admit that I'm wrong to a person that I am confident is completely wrong. I'm going to come back to this in a little bit, but I'll just give you a hint right here. That if all of us were willing to say I could be wrong, then I'm convinced that the withness of us together would lead us to a collective confidence in what was right. And so even for those times when you are absolutely certain you are right and the other person is wrong, there still needs to be some sort of commitment, some sort of sacrifice that says, I'm going to be with you on the journey as long as you also can be with me on the journey of trying to figure out 
what is right and what is wrong and whether or not it's even important in this case. But we'll come back to that idea in just a little bit. The second thing I want to draw your attention to from what we just read in Ephesians 4 is that we also have to have patience. It's not just about humility, it's also about patience. Patience is the idea that I'm not going to leave the table. You know, we're sitting here, we're having a conversation, and you just said something that really bothers me. I could get up and leave the table and just be done with you, done with the conversation, done with the dialogue. And I use the phrase table here because it implies that we are sitting down having an interaction with each other. But patience says, I'm not just going to run away at the first sign that you and I don't agree. I'm going to be with you, even if I can't be with your idea right now. I'm going to stay with you. I'm not going to leave this table. We're going to interact. I cannot think of anything more important for Christians than for us to stay in the dialogue with each other. Christians have had a long, long history in our world of finding a thing that makes us different from one another and then splitting up over it. And over time, we end up with all these tiny little different groups that are all correct in one way or the other, and all incorrect in other ways, but we've all separated from each other, and there's got to be something true in what Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is one of the key reasons why we do fusion as a multi-church thing, why we try to invest in the Greater Lafayette Gospel Association, multiple church uh, collection of churches and church leaders, why I'm part of the Pastors Alliance. It's the major reason why we try to do cooperation like that in our world. Because if we leave the table, we lose the with. And the only way for us to experience the kind of sacrificial love and the power that God can bring into our lives as a result of it is by finding ways to sit at the table. But let's keep going because there's a few more that I want to show you. Verse 11 Skip down to that. It says this. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his body for works of service, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. This is important. Christ gave to his church a variety of different gifts a variety of different roles, and a variety of different people to be in those roles exercising those gifts. Now, this is not a recipe that says if your church doesn't have an apostle and a prophet and evangelist and a pastor and a teacher, if you don't have all five of those job titles in your church, you're doing something wrong. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying there's a variety of people that God has put into leadership places with a variety of different gifts to do leadership things. And in that context, God is going to use these people to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. What that means is that we're all on the same team with the same goal. Even though we have different jobs, even though we have different roles, even though we have different gifts, we have different perspectives, we have different talents, we are all on the same team, and we all have the same goal. The goal is that the body of Christ might be built up. The goal is maturity. The goal is that we would be unified. The goal that Christ would be elevated. The goal of the body of Christ being built up. We all have the same goal. We all are on the same team. Now, 
There's a, a principle that I use in marriage counseling that I want to share with you today that is incredibly important. It's a principle that Jen uses when she is leading her team in, her, in the business where she works. She's a manager, and so she uses this, and I tell married couples they need to use this same principle. It's the idea that you're both on the same team, and the problem is never in between you. The way we usually tend to view problems is that there's me, there's you, and we disagree about this, this problem thing. And so I'm sitting over here, and I'm looking at you through the lens of this problem, and I can't understand at all why you can't see the problem from my perspective, even though it's obvious you're sitting over there. And so I'm looking at you, and I'm also thinking about the problem, and so I'm attacking you from the perspective of the problem that I can see over here. And I see you through the lens of this problem, and that causes more problems. Because when I accuse you of something through the lens of this problem, you deny it, because you don't even see the problem that way, and you don't like the fact that I am viewing you through that problem. And I feel the same way about you. But if the two of us could sit on the same side of the table with the problem on the table, then we're both looking at it. And someone might say, well, listen, let's turn that thing around. Let's look at all angles of it. And so we look at it all. But we're on the same team looking at the same thing, trying to make sure we're seeing it from the same perspective so that then we can come up with some sort of collective answer. It's great marital advice if you actually write down the problem on a piece of paper and sit on the same side of the table as you work on what the problem is and what the solution might be. Anytime you're face-to-face, sure, that might be great for having a romantic dinner, but it's not so good for having an argument about a problem because you don't put the problem in between the people. You put the people on the same side looking at the problem. And that's what we are in church. We are people on the same team. And we should always view it that way. On the same team, with the same goal. But let's keep going because I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says this, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Have you noticed anyone these days being tossed back and forth by cunning and craftiness, by deceitful scheming? Has that happened in our world? Is it still happening in our world? Paul says he's got a solution for it. We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by these waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What Paul is saying here is that all of us need to have the same authority. I could speak pragmatically. One of the reasons we're so divided these days is that we don't share the same authoritative source of information. 
And so one group of people believes what they believe because they've got their silo of information. Another group of people believes what they believe because they've got their silo of information. And because of the information gap, because of the information and misinformation that's going on there, and the selectivity of how we're getting our information, that's one of our big problems. But it's not the only problem. You see, the bigger problem is that we don't have the biggest authority at the toppest of places. We need to have the truth of God at the top. And I'm not just talking about the opinions of God's people. I'm talking about the actual truth of God. That means we have to say, okay, what does the text of Scripture actually tell us? What does the text of Scripture actually say to us about our modern world, about the things that we're facing these days? You know, to be honest with you, there's a lot of things we're dealing with right now that aren't in the Scriptures. And so we get a whole bunch of people who come up with their own ideas. Or maybe they take scriptural things and they reorganize the priorities. And so one of the problems is that this person over here has priorities that go A, B, C. And this person over here has priorities that go B, C, A. And it's like, well, how do, if the top priority isn't the same for both of us, even if we're dealing with the same text, how do we relate to each other? I mean, what do we do if we can't even agree on how to interpret the text? or how to prioritize the principles. Or if the thing we're dealing with is just completely absent from the text at all. When I was uh, in seminary, I had a professor, I I shared this story last Tuesday night in our group, but when I was in seminary, that's the graduate school for pastors. I was going for a master's in divinity, it's called. And uh, while I was there, the professor that I had my senior year, my final year, one of my professors was a guy teaching us a class in apologetics. But apologetics is the study of how to know that your faith is true and how to defend your faith to someone else. But this guy wasn't only teaching apologetics, he was also teaching other aspects of Christian ethics that he wanted us to have a good defense for. And one of the key things was his wife was an author, a highly respected author, who had a very controversial opinion. And when I say controversial, I mean there are two opinions in the Christian world about a particular way of understanding some passages of Scripture. And his wife, my professor's wife, was one of the top authors in the country upholding Perspective A. There was just one problem. I held Perspective B. And I'm the student, he's the professor, and his wife, clearly, he was in support of because he assigned her writings to our class that we would read. Final exam time comes. And on the final exam, he says, what's your position on A or B? I'm sitting there thinking, This dude's wife is one of the top writers on A, and I want to say B. So I did. I opened up my Bible, and I wrote down all the reasons why I was convinced the Bible was teaching B. And where appropriate, I challenged some of the things from A that I didn't think were actually from Scripture. And at the end, I turned in my final exam knowing full well that I had basically disagreed with my professor's wife. And you know the story. Happy wife, happy life. I was worried that unhappy professor leads to low grade. Um, I turned it in, 
when I got the paper back, I immediately flipped to the last page where he put his grades. And there at the top was a big A and some text under it that said, I do not agree with your conclusions, but the path you took to get there is biblical. And so he gave me an A. And I don't tell you that story to say, hey, look, I disagreed with my professor and I got an A, although that's kind of cool. I tell you the story because I'm firmly convinced that my professor taught me a better lesson in grading my paper than I learned in writing the paper. Because he taught me the lesson that even if I disagree with someone, if we are both standing on the pages of Scripture, then perhaps that's okay. And one of these days, God is going to tell us who's right and who's wrong. But standing on the pages of Scripture is the most secure place you can be. I'll give it to you this way. There is a historical statement that has been used countless times during church history. It's just very rarely lived out. It goes like this. In essentials, unity. That means if the Bible is very clear on something, and this is something that is essential to the faith, it's core to the faith, then we have to be unified over it. The second one is in non-essentials, liberty. If the Bible talks about it, but it's not an essential of the faith. If the Bible talks about it ambiguously and there's no clear way of understanding how this applies to the faith or that it requires us to have a particular perspective, then we have liberty in that area. And then in all things, charity. That means even if my list of essentials is different from your list of essentials, I'm still going to show you love. And even if your thing that you think is non-essential is something I think that is essential, I'm still going to show you love. In all things, charity. Um, there's just a lingering problem with that. What about the stuff today that is so far outside the bounds of Scripture that the Bible doesn't actually tell us anything about it, and yet is really harmful misinformation or harmful divisions that people have? We live in a world right now where there's a lot of misinformation that can, if the truth is truth, then the misinformation can lead to incredible harm. And so uh, it seems like a good Christian response would be to somehow counter, counteract that misinformation because the misinformation could lead to harm and Christians are supposed to be loving the people around us to try to make sure that we up, uphold people and support them and, and stuff. And, and listen, that is a very difficult question for us to ask. And so I'm just going to say by, you know, sort of a, a, a sweeping uh, aside here, no blanks for you to fill in, but there are some biblical principles that you should at least know about. Number one, there is a strong biblical principle in Romans chapter 13 that we should trust the government because God put them in charge. Now, you might doubt that they're doing the right thing, but Romans 13 tells us that God put them in charge and that we should at least submit ourselves to their authority. That's one thing. There's another thing where Proverbs would tell us that we should pay attention to the people who are wise, the people who've invested their hearts and lives in a particular thing. And I think it's implied then that we can trust experts. And then also, Proverbs would tell us that it is important for us to be people who walk in that way, who don't just trust the wise, but we walk that way too. And so there's some clear biblical principles that can lead us to some of these things. 
they have also been abused in our world today and in the past. In the past, everything I have just said was used to support slavery. The government said slavery was okay. The experts of the time said slavery was okay. Here's another thing. Just because a person claims to be a Christian, just because they claim to be a follower of Jesus, doesn't mean they're going to be telling you the truth. And there were lots of people back in the days of slavery who claimed to be Christians and said that it was okay. So how do we deal with it? Well, I'll just give you one little piece of reassurance. Back in the days of slavery, no one was paying attention to the passages in the Old Testament that said, free your slaves every 50 years. And no one was paying attention to any of the passages in Philemon where Paul says to his friend Philemon, hey, listen, you should let Onesimus, your slave, go free. So the explicit commands to let your slaves free were disregarded. And that's why we can clearly say the people back then were not standing firmly on Scripture when they said that slavery was okay. But that's an aside. And I want to take you back to this question of us being on the same team with each other. As Christians, if we want to experience the power of God, we need to walk in love together with other believers. It's just the way it has to be done. It's the way Paul prayed for it to be done. And it's the way God moves in our midst. We walk with other believers, even through difficulty and with sacrifice. We walk in it with other believers. But what do we do with the unbelievers? Do we just write them off? Do we run away? What do we do? Today, I'm only going to give you one verse, one little principle for how we should be with unbelievers. And it comes from Colossians. Let me show it to you. It says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. What the Apostle Paul is doing here in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, which is great. It's an easy one to remember, 4, 5, 6. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 is in the context of Paul saying before that in verse 4, pray for me that I can proclaim the word of God boldly. So he's not saying just always keep your mouth shut about divisive issues when it comes to the world around you. He says, pray that I proclaim the word of God boldly and in your relationship with outsiders, Always make the most of every opportunity. Be wise. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. In other words, I want to proclaim the word of God boldly, but I want to do it kindly. I want to do it nicely. I want to do it with grace. And I want to use some salt so that the people who taste it are like, ooh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Because if you just give someone the word of God plain and they have no experience of it whatsoever, they might not know how to taste it. But if you give it to them with some salt, they're like, yeah, bring more of that to me. And Paul says, pray and live that way. Be the kind of people who represent God in the world with a little bit of salt so that they see it and they can respond to it. See, here's the thing when it comes to you and your relationship with the outside unbelieving world and me and my relationship with them. The one thing that's easy for us to forget is that a person who's not a believer might not stay that way forever. A person who's not a believer is a person who is a potential believer. And the interaction you and I have with them 
might just change whether or not they become one. And so our job to the outside world is not to tell them all the ways they're wrong. Our job with the outside world is to be the church, to be the body of Christ, characterized by love, with words of grace, seasoned with salt, proclaiming the word of God boldly, but always in a context that is winsome to those people because they might someday join us. And I tell you what, if they don't like our doctrine, they should at least like our love. If they don't like the things we say about Jesus, they should at least like the fact that we live like Jesus. If they don't like what we say about heaven and hell, they should at least love the fact that in our environments, we're living in a little bit of heaven. They should experience what God's family can and should be, even if they never actually want to join it. Because here's the thing. Our struggle with the world around us has nothing to do with the world around us. Our struggle with the world around us has everything to do with whether or not Christians are living like Christians. And if we together live the with life with each other, living a life of love, representing Jesus well, upholding the truth, listen, I am convinced this world could be transformed maybe one last time. And so I'm going to give you just a phrase to think about as you go from this place today, as we sing our final song, as we reflect on these things, here's a final phrase. I am with God's family. We are for the world. I am with God's family. We are for the world. No matter who you encounter, there's still a person who bears the image of God. No matter what they believe, the image of God is still with them. And they are still a person who could potentially be saved and live with us, join with us in all eternity. And us, who are saved, who have given our lives to Jesus, who are walking this road together, we have the power of God, the potential of His presence in our midst all the time. Let me invite you to take just a moment in reflection, in quiet, and say, God, what is it going to take for me to fully step into the with life with other people. God, what is it going to take for me to even embrace some of that with life with the world around me and to lay aside all of the againstness that I feel? Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.